I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to the 28th part of my sermon series the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that marriage is designed to be the process by which we purposefully meld two lives into one that mirrors the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. So our first lesson of the new year on January 4th is the, is the last year of the life of Christ, and this is the 28th part of our sermon series, and our text is Luke chapter 16, verse 18, which says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is, who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name. Of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in our last lesson, we discussed the parable of the unjust steward, as recorded in Luke chapter 16, verse 1 through 13, who gave discounts to his master's debtors in order to receive favorable job consideration as he was losing his job as steward. We also discussed the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, recorded in Luke 16, 19 through 31, in which the rich man refused to minister to Lazarus, although Lazarus was begging in front of his domicile, and then asked Father Abraham to have Lazarus minister to him and his family after the rich man died and went to hell. Now, interestingly, between these two parables about the use of money and possession stands our, stands our text for today, an apparent non sequitur. Luke 16 and 18 says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, had the interesting perspective on life that he who dies with the most money wins. After listening to Jesus relate the parable of the unjust steward, in which Jesus made the point that it is better to use your, make, your money to make friends and please God so that God will receive you when you leave this life than it is to maximize your revenue, the Pharisees only had ridicule for Jesus' perspective. Luke 16 and 14 tells us, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Jesus responded to their ridicule in Luke 16 and 15, and Jesus said to them, You are those 
who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, there is an intrinsic potential problem with religious leadership. Religious leaders are human, meaning that they are susceptible to the temptation to sin, especially as it pertains to their handling of the word of God. Religious leaders can develop personal agendas that lead them to preach the word of God inaccurately, especially when they are subjected to peer pressure. Now, the word of God is an objective quantity. We have God's pronouncements in the Bible, which is written in specific language with specific meanings. Whether or not the word of God agrees with my personal desires or advances the agenda that I wish to advance ought not be the requirement that I use to decide that which I should say as a religious teacher. 2 Timothy 2.15 and 16 tells me, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Now the financial agenda of the Jewish religious leaders has caused them to reject the teaching of Jesus Christ, not because Jesus' teaching was incorrect, but because Jesus' teaching would cause them to have to change the way that they do business. But Jesus goes on to tell them that their corruption of the word of God is coming to an end. John the Baptist brought in the new order of baptism, one in which the biological membership in the nation of Israel was no longer the determinative factor of relationship with God. Luke 16 and 16 records, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. The law and the prophets is the name for the Old Testament dispensation of the nation of Israel. In the new theological concept of the kingdom of God, people have the opportunity and responsibility to decide to align themselves with the word of God rather than, as in the case of the nation of Israel, being confirmed or condemned by the accident of birth. People enter the kingdom of God by responding to the preaching of Jesus Christ, and people are responding to the ministry of Jesus Christ regardless of their biological lineage. The pagan Roman centurion called upon Jesus to heal his servant and was received as in the same way as was the Jewish synagogue leader Jairus that asked Jesus to heal his daughter. Everyone and anyone can get into the kingdom of God. But all that voluntarily enter the kingdom of God are subject to the law of God, as Jesus says in Luke 16 and 17, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Now, the new dispensation of the kingdom of God is not a change in morality, but a change in human leadership. The moral law of God has not changed, but in the kingdom of God, 
the corrupt interpretation of the law given by the leadership of the nation of Israel have become irrelevant. God found the ceremonies that the Israel put together to honor him repugnant unless they treat one another with the love that he commands. And God found all the Old Testament sacrifices over which the Jewish leaders presided useless and odious, as he tells them in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 to 15, which says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. God was not impressed with the Jews' protestations of love for him because they did not show their love to one another. As he told them in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. God is pleased with us when we treat others as we would want to be treated, especially those who are less fortunate than ourselves. And the leadership of Israel consistently refused to treat the less fortunate well, but rather used the ceremonies of God to oppress and enrich themselves at the expense of those over whom they had the leadership responsibility. Now, one great sin that the Israelites chose to practice was to divorce their wives for trivial reasons. They derived their rationale for doing this from Deuteronomy 24 and one which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Now, while it is true that the phrase some uncleanness is rather nebulous and can be interpreted in a number of ways, the true idea of marriage is found in the place in which marriage is instituted. Genesis 2.24, which says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the nature of marriage. In our own time, we have specific vows that we take and commitments that we make when we marry someone. The wedding vow says this, I take you to be my wedded spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, 
in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge you my faith. Now, I understand the phrase, till death do us part, but I have yet to find an Old Testament reference that descri describes exactly that which Moses meant when he used the word translated some uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24 and 1. Now, the definition of the Hebrew word used according to the Hebrew Dictionary of Biblical Languages is actually some uncleanness is indecentness, repulsiveness, any action or condition that is not proper or morally repugnant with a possible focus on bodily functions. Now, understanding the emphasis on virginity that existed in biblical society, it would seem to me that the idea of uncleanness would have to do with some type of venereal disfigurement or disease that a man would not find out that his wife had until he had actually married her, before which time he would not have seen her naked. And as I was coming along, a couple had to undergo a blood test for venereal diseases before they could get married. But those tests were not available during biblical days. However, the rabbis that controlled the Jewish laws in the days of Jesus took a much more liberal view of Deuteronomy 24 and 1. Based upon the liberal interpretation of the word uncleanness, divorce for the most trivial causes was sanctioned by the rabbis. And even such men who were considered great rabbis, such as Rabbi Hillel, the grandfather of Rabbi Gamaliel, of whom tradition speaks as the rabbi whose lectures were listened to by the boy Jesus, taught that a man could divorce his wife if in the cooking she burnt his dinner or even oversalted his soup. Now, this is an example of not doing that which Paul talked about in 2 Timothy 2, 15 and 16, saying, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more godliness. So as Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom of God to the Pharisees, he also rebuilds the most foundational of our institution by redefining the parameters of divorce and remarriage. In our text, Luke 6, 8, 16, 18, which says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. So now we know that divorce based upon trivial reasons is not that which God had in mind. And the debate as to what Moses meant in Deuteronomy 24 is settled. And Jesus gives the question a more full treatment in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, 1 and 2, the Bible says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him there, and he healed them there. Now, the mention of the multitudes and of Jesus' healing ministry always brings to mind the consternation of the Jewish religious leaders as to the popularity of Jesus among the people. One of the reasons that they hated Jesus so much was that Jesus was uncompromisingly holy on the one hand and overwhelmingly popular on the other. 
Now, John the Baptist could be dismissed by the Jewish leaders as an ascetic prophet living out in the wilderness. If the people wanted to listen to John's teaching, they had to go to the wilderness where John was because John wasn't coming into the cities to see them. John was revered as a prophet, but was not popular as a person because of his lack of interaction with the multitudes once they were baptized. But Jesus was just the opposite. Jesus would show up anywhere at any time, and he always drew a crowd with his displays of the power of God. The scribes and Pharisees could dismiss John as an annoyance, but they were much more threatened by Jesus because of the much more public nature of his ministry. However, by this time, John the Baptist was no longer on the scene. He had been killed by Herod. In Mark 16 and 17, the Bible explains, For Herod had sent and laid hold on John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Now Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, the son of Herod the Great, and the niece of Herod Antipas. On a trip to Rome, Herod had fallen in love with her. And in order to marry her, he had divorced his first wife, the daughter of Ariatus IV, the king of Nabataea, to the east and south of Perea, and persuaded Herodias to divorce her husband, Herod's half-brother, Philip. Now John rebuked Herod for divorcing his wife, for marrying a divorced woman, and then for marrying someone who had been married to his half-brother. Mark 16, 18-20 goes on to explain. Because John has said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against John the Baptist and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that John was a just and holy man, and Herod protected John. And when Herod heard John, Herod did many things and heard, and heard John gladly. So Herod imprisoned John at a distance from Herodias to avoid having to deal more harshly with John. But Queen Herodias had gone to a great deal of trouble to arrange her marriage with Herod, and she didn't want John or anyone else around to tell her that she should not be doing what she wanted to do. After all, if John could influence Herod more than she, John might be able to convince Herod to put her away even as Herod had divorced her predecessor. So the episode continues in Mark 16, 21 through 29. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. 
Immediately, the king set an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. So now, maybe you can understand one reason that the Jewish religious leaders were not overly anxious to preach and teach the true dictates of the Bible as they pertain to divorce and remarriage. And I've heard good church people reject the teaching of the Bible on this issue when it came to their own personal situation. And if I decide to divorce my wife to marry someone 20 years younger, I'm not sure you want me, I don't want you telling me I can't do it if I want to. If a powerful man and a powerful woman want each other, being a moral figure standing between them may not be the safest place to be. Now, understanding that Herod and Herodias were still together, that Herod was still the king, and that the Pharisees didn't particularly like Jesus, you can understand why they questioned Jesus in Matthew 19 and 3. The Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, Jesus, what are the chances that someone is going to carry your answer back to Herod, or maybe more to the point, Herodias? You're an itinerant rabbi teaching the law just like John. Maybe we can get Herodias to get rid of you in the same way she got rid of John. Of course, that depends on your answer. What do you say, Jesus? Matthew 19, 6 through 4, 4 through 6 records, And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. <clears throat> so as an answer, Jesus quoted the scripture, Genesis 2.24. That's not nearly as provocative as John personally telling Herod that his marriage was unlawful. And I'm not sure that Herodias will be as interesting in a debate on the law as she was on an attack on her personal marriage. So the Pharisees decide to probe further to see if they can turn this legal discussion into something that they can use. Okay, Jesus, since you want to talk about the law, let's discuss what Moses said. Matthew 19 and 7 records, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now this speaks squarely to the question of Deuteronomy 24 and 1. And Jesus responds, in Matthew 19 and 8, Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. The Old Testament dispensation took the hardness of the hearts of men into account. Romans 8, 6 8 describes our hard-hearted condition. It says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. For the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, 
nor indeed can be. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When Herod and Herodias were confronted with the unlawfulness of their marriage to one another, their response was hard-hearted, which is another way of saying that they were carnally minded, living according to the flesh. They were not subject to the law of God because they chose to do that which they wanted in spite of the clear teaching of the law. They did not and could not please God because they didn't want to. They wanted to please themselves, their flesh, their carnality. The law of God had no impact on them other than to cause them to imprison and kill the one that told them about it. But now the Old Testament dispensation is over. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to agree to be changed. You have to agree to receive the Holy Spirit that will empower you to follow the law of God. That is the reason for baptism. Baptism is the symbol that you are putting to death the carnal man within you and that you have decided to put to death the deeds of the flesh and have to decided to be reborn following the dictates of the Holy Spirit, becoming the new spiritual man that can and has decided to follow the law of God. Romans 8, 12 through 14 tells us, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So when Jesus says in Matthew 19 and 8, in the beginning it was not so, Jesus is referring to the original state of marriage, which was instituted before the fall in the garden, before man decided to live according to the flesh and eat of the fruit rather than trust in the spirit of God and leave the fruit alone. In the beginning, marriage was designed to be a commitment, just as the vows that we read earlier are a commitment. Marriage is not designed to produce constant euphoric emotional satisfaction or sexual ecstasy. Marriage is designed to be the process by which we purposefully meld two lives into one that mirrors the relationship between the three parts of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 19.6 says, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. If you come to the altar and make vows and the minister prays over your union and presents you to God, God is involved in the joining up together of your lives. God knows that both you and the one that you choose to marry are imperfect. And he expects the two of you to have problems making the adjustments needed to perfect your union. That is why God gives us time to live together and to grow up together. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16 tells us that as we develop, we should no longer be children 
tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth of love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now the emotional feeling that causes many marriages is not love. That emotional feeling is about the way that the other person makes me feel. And love is about how I make the other person feel. Love is not about receiving, but about giving. John 3, 16 and 17 defines it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus tells us in Mark 10 and 45, for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Love is not being served, but serving, giving our very lives for someone else. When we marry in an immature state, we fall out of love and want to divorce because our immediate trivial emotional needs are not being met. But we don't grow by having our needs met, but by developing the larger perspective that allows us to meet the needs of others. And an interesting transformation happens when we resolve to meet the needs of others. The Lord sees and he works to make sure that our needs are eventually net, met. Love is a condition that we develop in the gymnasium of commitment. We have to go into the gym and work our love out every day in the same way that we would have to go into the gym and work our physical bodies out to be at peak physical performance every day. Divorce is a simple selfish statement that my commitment is worthless and that even in the most intimate of relationships, I prefer to remain self-centered and not put in the work required to achieve the goal that God has for me. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Love never fails because God does not allow it to. The Pharisees thought that they could cause the mission of Jesus Christ to fail, but they could not get him to say something provocative enough for Herodias to condemn him as she had John the Baptist. 
So they took the more direct route and arrested Jesus themselves and then prevailed upon Pilate to crucify Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And they were successful in their attempt. They stood at the foot of the cross of Calvary and watched their plan come to fruition. Jesus Christ was crucified until he hung his head in the locks on his shoulder and he died. Then they buried him in Joseph's tomb and had the tomb guarded to make sure that no one stole his body from the tomb. But God did not allow Jesus' love to fail. And on the third day, early in the morning, God changed the course of nature and raised Jesus Christ from the dead. What problem could we have in our marriage that could compare with death on the cross? If God can overcome that obstacle, with what kind of problem could we present him that he might find hard to solve? Don't focus on your negative condition, but focus on having the love that Jesus Christ had. Love that is self-sacrificial rather than self-serving. Staying married is maintaining a Christian perspective. Marriage is the laboratory in which we grow in the knowledge of God. Marriage is the one institution in which we can practice the self-sacrificial nature of Jesus Christ on the most intimate level, and marriage is the one institution in which we can experience a bond akin to the oneness of the Trinity as fully as it can be experienced on this side of heaven. That is the reason that marriage is the foundational relation in the scripture, and the reason that Jesus tells us to maintain our marriage vows until death does us part. Jesus proved that sometimes the true reward does not come until we have finished our commitment to the end. In Matthew 19, 4 and 6, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And Romans 8, 35-39 tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our love, our Lord. Keeping our marital commitments is the mandate of God. Let us not be separated from God or from one another. 
And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Mr. God, our Father, we thank you this morning for our lesson and for your pronouncement about marriage and love and help us to remember that it is the foundational relationship. It is the first relationship that you sanctified in the Bible, the one that you call for to be a permanent relationship and the one through which we can work to grow and develop into what you would have us to be. And we ask you, Lord, that you bless marriages, all the marriages in this place, that you would bind us together with cords of self-sacrificial love that cannot be broken. Give us the same love for one another that you had for us when you gave yourself on Calvary's cross as a sacrifice for the sins that we have committed. Now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. We ask you for traveling mercies as we go down from this place and that you would once again bring us back at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.